June 23, 1989 was my night, and like Mikey's speech in The Goonies, it was my time. After all the amazing promotions done by Warner Brothers, after all the trailers on TV, after all the fan magazines, the comic book adaptations, the interviews, and print songs, it was time to put up or shut up. And I walked up to the usher, handed him my ticket for Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie, and prayed to God I wouldn't be let down. This is 21 Years, a podcast about the 80s and 90s, where we explore pop culture history and tell the stories behind the stories. Tonight, we're going to be talking about 1989's Batman and how it saved the musical artist known as Prince's career. So grab your Crystal Pepsi, stroke your Ewok, put on your Roo shoes with the little secret pocket on the sides for your lunch money, and let's go explore Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie and the story behind the story on how it affected the artist Prince's career. Stay tuned, guys. This is 21 Years. I'm your host, El Dangeroso. Oh, I got a live one here. know what you're thinking but i actually did you a favor that song is actually seven minutes long so i did you a little bit of favor by cutting out about six and a half minutes of it but of course that was bat dance by prince and it all intertwines in what we're going to talk about tonight with 1989's batman by tim burton now the movie itself is surrounded by a lot of rumors and innuendo and we're going to cover a little bit of that tonight what this episode is not is what none of our episodes are, which are Wikipedia breakdowns of every detailed moment about the movie and how it all broke down and who was who and all that. We're going to cover some of that, but it's not really what we do. I know that there are other shows out there that like to do historical things and they go on for two hours and all of that. That's not what we do here. We try to keep it short and simple, put it in a nice little tight package and hit major points. But we really try to get behind the stories that people have never heard before. And one of the big ones here, of course, is Prince and this movie basically saving his career with the soundtrack. But we have to frame up the situation with Batman the movie, kind of tell a little bit of background about it, and interesting anecdotal things and little you know historical stuff that you might like if you're if you like the movie or listen. This is not a podcast for Batman fanatics. It's not what the show does. It's not trying to cater to all of that. It's just, hey, this is a cool little story for people who are Generation Xers or people interested in the 80s and 90s. And here's a really neat story. Uh, We've been doing things like Cyndi Lauper's uh, effect on Hulkamania, you know, how she was responsible for creating Hulkamania in a lot of ways. Al Capone's vault with uh, how it created Geraldo Rivera's career. And so it's kind of what we do. We just tell you really cool little things. Um behind the stories that you know about and it's always pop culture related stays between 1980 and 2001 hence 21 years and i really love doing this and i appreciate you being here please share please be a part of that also please we've got a new facebook page 
right? So go look for 21 years on Facebook and you'll find us and uh, please join and follow. We post the episodes there to make it easy on you. Uh, we'll post little things about the eighties and nineties and there's some discussion there. It's kind of new and growing slowly, but I'd really appreciate it if you went over there and joined up. It would be a lot of fun. So please do that. But he didn't come here for the sales pitch. He came here for the information. So let's get started and talk about 1989's Tim Burton's Batman. Now, Batman was released June 23rd, 1989. And I remember at the age of 11, sitting in a small theater in a town of about 6,000 people. And the theater probably set 50 patrons, and I begged my parents to drive me there a few days before so I could pre-purchase tickets for the 7.30 showtime. I really, really didn't want to miss this. It's kind of a big deal when you're 11 years old for a Batman movie that's live action and looked amazing in the theatrical trailers that they released on TV, as well as, you know, previews of magazines and everything like that. Now, my family was pretty serious moviegoers. And kind of as my sister and I got older, the more we all went to the movies as a family. In fact, I remember my first movie experience. My parents took me foolishly at five years old to see Poltergeist starring Greg T. Nelson, later of Coach Fame, which is a great show if you get an opportunity. And I believe that's on the Raku channel. So if you like Coach, you can find it on Raku. Search it out. It's just as funny as you remember. It's, it still makes me laugh. But anyway. I remember my father having to take me to the lobby on two occasions for crying. Once when the creepy clown pulled the young boy under the bed after it had been staring at him in the chair, a scene that still freaks me out to this day. And secondly, when the unfinished pool in the family's yard fills with water from a storm revealing the source of the haunting all along, dead Indian bodies and skeletons pushing their way through the mud walls. I may have been terrified, but that didn't stop my family and their movie obsession. In truth, I think it was kind of the first time my family really had disposable income. My father owned a small business, and I believe around the early 80s, he was finally in the position to support the family on his own. My parents had a pretty tight ritual before I could drive and spread my wings of freedom. Friday was dinner out. The choices were Ryan's Steakhouse, home of the Mega Salad Bar, which was great. A local Chinese place called Golden Chopsticks, or a local short-lived steakhouse called Dakota's. Then a walk around Walmart to check out the all-under-one-roof superstore, or we rented a movie at one of the smaller video rental chains before Blockbuster and Hollywood Video came along, like Action Video, which was busy but had a larger selection, or Prime Video, which had a smaller selection but rented WWF videos. (laughs) Or we went to the movies. I was usually kind of a victim to my parents' movie choices, but luckily in the 80s it was rare to really catch a bad movie. Like teen dramas, action flicks, comedies were always on the regular rotation. So, I guess in reality, having to watch Police Academy, Beverly Hills Cops, St. Elmo's Fire, even a Bobcat Goldthwaite movie wasn't really a raw deal in the slightest. You had two true theaters to choose from at that time one was the local small theater with four screens, or you could get really frisky and drive 20 minutes to the mall, eat at Bennigan's, and hit the 10 screen theater. That was usually reserved, though, for special occasions. In other words, I'm kind of saying New Year's Eve. And New Year's Eve was the time we would cheat the system, really. Pay for one movie at 7 and movie hop until the place closed down at 1 a.m. Was it bad parenting for kids to cheat the movie system like that? Not really back then. In some weird dynamic, they kind of encouraged it. Movies always start at 15 minutes between each other. So we'd finish one, hide in the bathrooms as a family, (laughs) and move on to the next movie we wanted to see. 
I really don't think anyone cared truly. And after all these years, we never got caught. Pretty sure in 1988, I once saw a roulette of Ernest Saves Christmas and Scrooge in the same night. But June 23rd, 1989 was my night. And like Mikey's speech in the Goonies, it was my time. After all the amazing promotions done by Warner Brothers, after all the trailers on TV, after all the fan magazines, the comic book adaptations, the interviews, and print songs, it was time to put up or shut up. And I walked up to the usher, handed him my ticket for Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie, and prayed to God I wouldn't be let down. I wasn't. Not in the slightest. It was dark and gritty, well-acted, realistic, and flat-out amazing. More than I actually could have ever really hoped for. 1989's Batman is probably the only movie I ever remember where my expectations were exceeded. Even today, I can look back and say that the movie holds up extremely well. The dark overtones, the mature story, great writing, and the bat suit. I mean, my God, the bat suit was so damn cool. And I don't even mention the Batmobile. The Batmobile was something we had never seen before, and the flames coming out of the back. And it's elongated, you know, just look monstrous. This Batmobile was so well done. Tim Burton sold me as the greatest director to ever breathe when I was 11 years old after that movie. I'd still thank him if I saw him on the street, to be honest with you. It was that good for me. The theater was packed, though, with kids I went to school with. Packed with cool kids, nerdy kids, kids I've never actually seen before. Everyone wearing the hottest fashion trend of 1989, the Batman shirt. They were everywhere by then. The movie had created so much hype that Batman merchandise was selling out everywhere. Even the toys were on back order. My first rain check was at Kmart near where I lived. They were completely sold out of the Batmobile and I got a rain check and was told they would hold one for me when they came in. I called them every single day. The manager was nice, but he knew who the kid calling about the Batmobile was. Finally, Weeks later, he called and left a very happy message on our answer machine that a shipment had come by and my Batmobile would be at customer service waiting for me. I think his jovial message was partly a bit happy for me and partly a lot relieved that I would never darken his days again. But that's how it was back then. Warner Brothers sold out their licensing to virtually any company that wanted one. And the result, Batman shirts, Batman shoes, Batman pants, Batman pajamas, action figures, posters, socks, literally everything. Trading cards. I mean, Batman was everywhere. It was the hottest commodity from January 1989 and for years afterwards. Batman became a ridiculous franchise money-making machine, but it was surrounded by rumors and innuendos. In fact, the movie itself took 10 years to make. I swear it's true. 1989's Batman movie wouldn't have been possible if it weren't for a man named Michael Uslan, a producer and writer who purchased the rights for the Batman character because he himself was a huge fan of comic books. Now, Uslan has an incredible story here. In 1971, he was a graduate student at the University of Indiana. He took over a class that was based on comic books and their history as an art form and changed it into a three-hour accredited class on comic book folklore. His theory was that superheroes were the contemporary mythology that ran parallel with Greek mythology, thus becoming the first professor of comic books. When news stories came out that the class would be taught on the Indiana College campus, Uslan received calls from Marvel and DC wanting to help him promote it. 
Uslan actually took a summer job with D.C. while going back to school in the fall to become a lawyer. Once he graduated and after working a career as a lawyer for many years in the movie industry, Uslan approached the people he connected with in D.C. and asked them if he could buy the rights to Batman in 1979. D.C. was actually really reluctant. Not because Batman was valuable in 1979, because he really wasn't. Batman was worth very little then. But they liked Uslan so much that they felt he was throwing his money away. They actually tried to talk him out of it. See, after the Batman series in the 60s ended, Batman was seen as campy and cartoonish. Batman comics actually weren't a major moneymaker for DC anymore. And the president of DC actually told Uslan that Batman was a dud and dead as the dodo. He begged Uslan not to waste his money buying the rights. But he was persistent. Uslan's dream was always to make a real-life dark Batman movie, one that reflected the comics. Uslan despised the 60s series and felt it never captured the true essence of the real Batman he knew in the comics. He felt Batman had a lot more life left, so for a rumored very low amount of money, which I can't find online when I use the Google machine, Uslan bought the rights to make a Batman film. Now, as the owner of the rights, his next move was to get a real-life Batman movie made, which presented a lot of obstacles. Uslan thought a Batman movie would be a slam dunk with studios. He thought he could walk in, take the movie rights, and the studios would go nuts. But the opposite happened. Uslan took the movie rights to every studio and was absolutely turned down. He was told a Batman movie would never make money, and that it was an absolutely terrible idea. Over the next seven years, Uslan would continue to pitch Batman to studios trying to get a movie made. Batman comics began to become pretty popular again with more mature and adult stories. The comic began to appeal to comic readers, and finally, after debating it, Warner Brothers stepped up and accepted the challenge to make a Batman movie. And in 1988, the writing, casting, and production for Batman began. Things actually continued to go pretty great for Uslan and Batman, with the announcement of Jack Nicholson playing the Joker. Fans of Batman were thrilled, and movie fans perked up when an A-list actor was connected to a film about a superhero. Initially, the reception was warm with Nicholson's involvement. Unfortunately, that was short-lived when the following-up announcement was made. Tim Burton was hired to be the director. His resume was short and boasted really just two films, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and a recently released film called Beetlejuice. The success of both made him very bankable, but Batman wasn't a comedy. It was going to actually pay tribute to a serious and dark comic book adaptation. Fans were not confident in Burton having that vision. Burton's immediate and most important task, though, was casting the actor for Batman. Many actors were considered for this role, including Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, Willem Dafoe, Tom Selleck, Charlie Sheen, Ray Liotta, Pierce Bronson, and in a very Burton fashion, even Bill Murray was considered. Yeah, that Bill Murray. All of which had conflicts or turned the role down pretty quickly. It was producer John Peters who suggested Michael Keaton. Burton had not considered Keaton despite just finishing filming the successful Beetlejuice with him. But after some thoughts, Burton began to warm up to the idea of Keaton after realizing Keaton's incredible ability to be a character actor. He felt Keaton was actually perfect for the role and cast him after some thought. The proverbial, you know what, hit the fan when the announcement was made about Keaton. Fans and critics were absolutely enraged that 5'9", 180-pound Michael Keaton would be playing the role of a 6'2", 210-pound muscular hero named Batman. Burton was ridiculed for his choice, but Burton stood firm 
that he knew Keaton could deliver on a serious character. Over 50,000 letters were sent to Warner Brothers, angry with the casting of Keaton. Burton was even pressured by Warner Brothers to look into other actors for Batman, and he did so without any inclination to really change his choice from Keaton. Burton explains it perfectly when he said, It's about transformation. It's like the guy you could see putting on a bat suit. He does it because he needs to, because he's not this gigantic strapping macho man. For Burton, it all clicked with Keaton. A guy like Keaton needed the suit. The suit made him, and in essence, the movie is really about the suit and the man in it. And with that, despite the anger, Burton's Batman began to film. Now, there's always a point in the podcast where we stop right around the time I give you the little unknown background and tell you the meat of why the title is what it is. The title is How Batman Saved Prince's Career. So how did that happen? Well, here's the real story behind the story of 1989's Batman. Prince was no stranger to extravagance and expense. In fact, he spared none when it came to making his albums, on his tour, his own personal expensive taste, and filming his movies Purple Rain and Under a Cherry Moon. And now Prince was feeling the purse strings tighten. He was in so much debt that his management group was trying to leverage his future earning potentials to finance his huge amount of debt that he currently was in. Prince's friend and director of Purple Rain, Albert Magnoli, was hired to take over Prince's personal finances. Magnoli opened the books and found a complete financial mess of overspending and living in excess. He stated that the situation was horribly worse than even his management knew and that he had to immediately start finding revenue streams so Prince wouldn't lose everything he owned. After six hit albums that sold multiple times platinum, which is a million units, the tours, the movies, Prince's finances were in horrible shape. Magnoli canceled any activity where Prince could spend lavishly. Any album or movie projects, including a documentary, were all shelved. The first thing was to stop the bleeding. The next thing was to find income that had limited expenses like studio time or tour bus rentals with a stylist. One project Magnoli came across was the Batman soundtrack. Warner Brothers was toying with the idea of Prince doing the entire album for them. It was promising because Prince could write, sing, and record while Warner Brothers paid the bills for the studio time, and Prince would get a cut of the album sales. It was a true win-win for the singer. It was a Prince album with a Batman theme, but at the same time it wasn't because he incurred zero expenses to make it. The best part of this was Warner Brothers had no idea how to do a Prince album centered around Batman, so they essentially just let Prince write and record. The concern for Magnoli was that Prince wouldn't be able to write an album that wasn't about Prince, and he knew Warner Brothers would pull the project if they got a Prince song that had nothing to do with Batman. Magnoli realized from his experience in filmmaking that the real solution to the puzzle was to have Prince watch sections of the film to write about. He then asked Warner Brothers for short major scenes in the film to show Prince to curtail his writing to fit scenes in the movie. Burton was then given the authority to place the Prince songs where he likes over scenes, but was also given instrumental scores to also place where he wanted in the movie that were done by Danny Elfman. Elfman would handle the beautiful instrumental scores and Prince would handle the soundtrack. Burton was essentially the one who decided where the Prince and Elfman pieces were used in the film, which is why you may remember there were actually two Batman film soundtracks that were sold, one featuring Elfman and one featuring Prince. Burton did one better, though, and he brought the uncut film to Prince's house where they sat and watched it together. And I have the weirdest like thought of Tim Burton and Prince watching Batman in Prince's living room together eating popcorn, and I don't know why that's so funny to me, but it absolutely cracks me up to think of those guys sitting there just eating popcorn, having a conversation, watching Batman. 
I mean, the only thing that's missing is is basically Michael Jackson. I mean, you throw Michael Jackson in that mix, it's even better. I mean, you could do a painting, an oil painting of that scene. And it would probably sell for millions. But Burton left the rough copy behind for Prince to use as inspiration. Prince was into sampling at the time in dance music. He took sound clips from the rough version of the film and used them in songs he was writing. After an inspired Prince locked himself in his Minneapolis studio, he offered the first song, the famous dance groove, Bat Dance, which is instrumental synth dance music with audio clips from the movie. Those clips you hear are from the original untouched audio of the film, and the song was actually six minutes long. But Warner Brothers was skeptical and wasn't sure a six-minute song would even get radio play. Eventually, they were convinced that if they didn't see it as a song, that they should see it as a six-minute advertisement for the movie, since it was loaded with audio clips. So Bad Dance was released as a single and sent out to radio stations everywhere as an advertisement. But Bad Dance was an instant hit. Released before the release of the film, it excited fans to hear actual dialogue from the anticipated film that by this time had begun its marketing campaign in full swing. Magazines were now releasing sneak peeks of scenes from the movie. Adaptations were being made for comic books. Batman magazines were beginning to hit the newsstand. And like I've said many times here on 21 Years, the perfect moment, perfect hype, perfect marketing created a perfect powder keg. And the general public was now itching to see the movie. Magnoli was tasked with directing the music videos for three of the singles, Bat Dance, Party Man, and Scandalous. And he and Prince developed visuals that would be combined between Batman and Prince's work. Magnoli's strategy to put Prince's career back on track paid off. The revenue from the Batman soundtrack, and after severe cost-cutting, Prince went from a $10 million a year deficit to $2 million a year surplus, which allowed Prince to continue on without concern and without changing his lifestyle drastically which allowed Prince to continue on without concern and without changing his lifestyle much. In essence, Prince was allowed to continue his career without interruption of bankruptcy. Batman saved Prince's career by allowing him to get out of certain bankruptcy and start over without changing his lifestyle, as the Batman album went on to sell over 4 million copies worldwide. In the end, everything Batman was connected to was successful. Burton proved everyone wrong. Keaton was perfectly cast. The vision Burton had for the film was amazingly well done, and the film would go on to win numerous rewards in the film industry, not to mention making over $400 million in the box office. Batman was a phenomenal success. Warner Brothers cashed in on billions of dollars between marketing and the film. Prince salvaged his career, and my 40-something-year-old self still loves the movie as much as my 11-year-old self did back in 1989. The film not only buried the cartoonish and campy Adam West version, it destroyed it viciously. In that small 50-person theater on the night of June 23rd, I saw the most amazing movie that lived up to every ounce of hype it produced. That's rare, and it's a lost feeling now. Movies now have $200 million budgets. Computers have changed the scale of which we can do movies now, and our expectations are higher than ever. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate that. But still, I put Batman up there with Star Wars from the aspect that it's overly achieved its goal for a special effects large film with a live-action story, and most importantly, when people doubted it could be done. Of course, Batman and Keaton would come back to do Batman Returns in 1992. Although it wasn't as successful, they were set to do a third one, but it never happened. The Burton Batman 3 never happened because of the reaction to Batman Returns, which was swift and brutal throughout the press. Batman Returns was actually a little too dark. Families went in to see Batman, and when the lights came up, 
Their kids were crying and adults felt ill. Batman Returns was a little too violent for the family audience at Target. Batman Returns opened on June 19, 1992, and before the 4th of July weekend, the Los Angeles Times was famously publishing angry letters over the content of the film and its connection to McDonald's. <laughs> One angry letter dated June 27, 1992 said, Violence-loving adults may enjoy this film, but why on earth is McDonald's pushing this exploitive movie through the cells of its so-called quote-unquote Happy Mills? Has McDonald's no conscience? One Warner Brothers suit said in Entertainment Weekly, It's just too dark, and it's not really a lot of fun. Batman Returns also performed weaker at the box office, bringing in just under $300 million, almost $200 million less than the movie in 1989. Initially, Tim Burton was still expected to return what was being called Batman 3 in the trade papers. There were even reports that Robin Williams was expected to play the Riddler for Burton's third Batman film, as well as a return from Michelle Pfeiffer for her iconic role as Catwoman. And believe it or not, Marlon Wayans from Living Color was cast as Robin. Eventually, Burton quit after a meeting with Warner executives gave Burton the hint that he was out when they suggested he may want to do a more Burton film over a third Batman. So Jules Schumacher was brought in to do a more Happy Mill version of Batman and in many opinions ruined the Batman franchise. Jules Schumacher's Batman really ushered in a more colorful, neon, over-the-top Batman with nipples and cars going up buildings and uh, criminals who had neon glow sticks they were fighting with and it just was really really over the top i like to refer to the schumacher movie series with batman as the happy mail batman because it's really what it kind of was for marketing purposes sadly no script for batman 3 i think was ever done or made and so we don't know what the plan was for that we don't know what burton's vision was for it but I got to be honest with you, I really think it would have been really amazing. Uh, I can see where Batman Returns kind of begins to get darker. It's not 1989's Batman, the original for sure. But I think it was taking a more mature turn. And I think despite the fact that kids were really coming to the theater to see Batman, it was a movie that was for adults and children at the same time. And as Batman begins to mature, the storyline matures, and I think that was the direction Burton was kind of going with this, but unfortunately, it didn't pan out. You look back on Batman Returns, and in my opinion, is it's a very, very solid Batman movie. I still enjoy watching it. It's not the original, but it is very, very good, and I, and I do enjoy watching it still, and I can't imagine life in the Batman series without it, without Batman Returns there. So I enjoyed the more adult overtones of Batman Returns. But really what Batman brings to all of us is a, a door that's been opened for superhero movies. In no way do you have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, these Iron Man movies, Captain America, Avengers, all this stuff, without Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. It's just, that's what happened. It opened up the door. It proved to the movie industry that superhero movies could make money, that there were tons of fans out there that wanted to see them. So we've got to tip our hat a lot to Tim Burton in 1989 for making this movie and Warner Brothers for making this movie taking the chance on it because there was really a time where it didn't look like a Batman live action film was going to actually happen. So it really opened up the floodgates for what we see now in the cinematic universe of comic book heroes and superheroes. So it's very, very important. Listen, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to the episode tonight. 
Sorry, it's been a little bit of a gap. I went on vacation. A lot of things were going on. My kids are out for the summer. So I'm trying to spend a lot of time with them. So sometimes episodes will get a couple of weeks in between them. I try to do one every other week. And I'll try to get back on that schedule. We're going to get into that. Or I got stuff coming up, coming up that's going to be really, really good. I've got plans to do um, something for the Back to the Future anniversary and and all of that. So we're going to go full steam and do some really great stuff. And we need to do some music things too. Um, so we're going to tap on TV some. We're going to tap on music some. We're probably going to tap on news stories a little bit. But it's all going to be the pop culture related uh, type of stuff. Uh, in 1980 and 1990, we're not going to go past that. We're going to stay right on course. So uh, don't forget to like this podcast, subscribe, share it, tell everybody you can about it. It really helps with the growth. And also submit any opinions that you have, and you can submit those in at samwill2261 at gmail.com. Come straight to me, give me a suggestion, and I'll be happy to uh, look at it and see what we can do. And don't forget, like I told you before, join the Facebook page, 21 years on Facebook. A lot of people there, we're trying to get things going. We post the we post our uh, podcast there and all that and share pictures. And, you know, I did some commercials on, you know, the old Rambo figurines that were coming out and, you know, things like that. So it's a lot of fun. You can go back there and reminisce and, and enjoy it. Um, in fact, I think I put up the Cindy Lauper um, Goonies Are Good Enough video. That was a lot of fun to watch. If you're not seeing that video, it's kind of mind-blowing, but... Uh, We put things like that up there. So, you know, come and join us, be a part of it, and please give feedback. Uh, Always enjoy that. So thank you so much, everybody. I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. This is 21 Years. I'm El Dangeroso. We'll see you next time. Good night. Oh, I got a live one here. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.